Welcome to the Education Gadfly Show. I'm your host, Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Today, Checker Finn, Fordham's President Emeritus, joins us to discuss why and how to bring accountability back to American schools. Then, on the Research Minute, Amber discusses a new study that measures the differences in teacher effectiveness across generations. All that on the Education Gadfly Show. This is the Education Gadfly Show. I have never once in my long life wished that Alfie Cohen was right. (laughs) What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. You're at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome our special guest for this week, the original Education Gadfly, Checker Finn. Here am I. Great to have you back, Checker. Joining us as always, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. I guess that makes me the unoriginal education gadfly, right? <laughs> I I mean, uh, okay, sure. <laughs> if you want to try to claim that, the, the gadfly's sidekick, I don't know. Uh, sure. <laughs> wingman. How about a wingman that goes with gadfly? Yes, I like that. I like that. Gadfly's wingman. Hey, exciting news I want to share with you all. Walt Whitman... Varsity football won a football game for the first time in four years this weekend. Hooray. With the ball being carried by Nico Petrilli, no doubt. No, no. Nico's on the JV team. Unfortunately, the JV game was canceled because the varsity game was uh, lightninged out on Friday night and got moved to Saturday. And they bumped the JV game. But no, I'm just celebrating the prowess of Walt Whitman. It's been a, a long four years. For those poor guys. That means that there were guys as seniors. This is the first time they've, they've ever won a game. Well, maybe if they bumped them up from JV, they would have won earlier, Mike. The solution seems obvious here, right? <laughs> no, no, no. They, they just bumped the time of the game. I mean, they still played a varsity team. No, I meant, I meant Nico. <laughs> oh, I see. Well, yeah, I, I, yeah. No, I'm happy. Happy for him to play guys his size and not way bigger. It's one of those one of those country club high schools. They usually just play frisbee. Oh, I did notice. Yes, they are recruiting for the ultimate frisbee team right now. So I worry a little bit that some of the football players might decide. All right, maybe that's more my speed. All right, well, Checker, we are here to talk about accountability, which is actually a topic that people don't talk about that much more uh, anymore, and we think they should. So let's talk about that on Ed Reform Update. <music> All right, Checker, you wrote a piece this summer called The Accountability Conundrum. I had a a piece in this small rag last week. Okay, it was the New York Times saying that uh, in this era, uh, learning loss, we need to get back to accountability. But uh, you and I are both, at least in these articles, a little vague on what we mean. Should we go back to No Child Left Behind? Is that what's called for at this time? Tell us, Checker, what would you do to bring accountability back to American education? Well, let's be clear that we're talking about accountability for results of learning at the school level and or the kid level, the student level. We're talking about the fact that people who achieve the level of learning that they should or institutions that achieve the level of learning or the growth toward that level of learning should get rewarded, rewarded, and those that don't should get intervened in in some constructive way that causes them to do better and get closer to, I'll call it proficiency. You can do it with carrots. You can do it with sticks. Right now we're doing it with neither because we're not paying much attention to outcomes. So you got to start by caring about outcomes as a kind of a 
top policy consideration and think that that's the most important thing schools have to do. And if you can get to that point, which neither the Republicans nor the Democrats nor the education establishment is at today, then we can talk about mechanisms to create incentives and perhaps disincentives. Uh, But we're nowhere near the focus on learning outcomes that makes the whole thing meaningful. Right. I mean, you know, some of us have been writing about and talking about learning loss, but even that phrase, people say, oh, well, it wasn't really lost or it was wasn't like they've actually know less. You know, this this particular child knows more than they did three years ago. Well, okay, but they don't know as much as they would have had they actually gone to school. We had this pandemic. It was terrible. You know, we're not even talking about relitigating the decisions made during the pandemic necessarily. But here we are in a state where kids learn, just know a lot less than they otherwise would. They're also going through these terrible crises around mental health. You know, both of us wrote about this notion that during the No Child Left Behind days, we did make a mistake. And we made a mistake in that we assumed that the system had more capacity than it does. We thought the main issue was will, uh, when there was also an issue with skill, as our uh, colleague on the Fordham board, Stephanie Sanford, likes to say. That, you know, the, the back then we thought, look, if you just put enough pressure on schools, on principals, they will go looking for answers about how to get better results. We've seen this in the high quality charter school sector. You know, you look at KIPP or a Success Academy or Uncommon Schools or IDEA. These are institutions, organizations that have this culture where they say, what do we need to do to boost outcomes? And let's find a better curriculum. Let's figure out what the school day should look like. Let's uh, make sure our teachers have the best instructional methods, on and on and on, as you'd want them to do. And yet that didn't happen for most traditional public schools. They didn't know what to do. And in many cases, they panicked. Uh, there was, I mean, that, that could be teaching to the test. It could be cheating outright. But we realized that there wasn't as much capacity. So look, there's been a lot of effort over the last 10, 15, 20 years in, quote, boosting capacity, you know, high quality curriculum, and better professional development and the science of reading and all of this. And now the question is, can we keep doing that capacity building and get back to holding schools accountable for results? Can you can you focus on both skill and will at the same time? Uh, we I'd say we've overcompensated. Uh, going both in the direction of, of of capacity building and also in the direction of focusing on non-academic elements of of schooling, stuff like um, um, social and economic, uh, social and emotional learning, mental health, if you will, socialization issues, whole child issues, all of which have their place. But if you if you just go a hundred percent into non-academic stuff and you don't have the the will literally, uh, you don't have room for the will to to work on academic outcomes. But the question again is, what do we actually do for schools that are not getting the job done? Right? Let's say the schools that are making the least progress for kids year to year in in reading and writing and mathematics. You know, kids have lost a ton of time on with learning loss. Uh, and I don't have a better idea, Checker, than to close those schools down. Because, you know, the Obama folks spent uh, something like $7 billion on the school improvement grants program. And in most places, that money didn't do any good in terms of turning schools around. So spending the money, turnarounds, I mean, none of that at scale seems to work. To me, the only thing that seems to work is 
close the bad schools down. They're under-enrolled anyways. Figure out a way to get kids into better schools. Keep working on charter schools. I mean, is, is that what we mean? I mean, are, it, it doesn't sound quite as popular when we're saying we're in favor of closing neighborhood schools as saying that we're in favor of accountability. But is that what we're saying? Uh, yes, yes, and. Uh, there are, I agree with everything you said, but there are some equivalents to closing schools down that we also didn't do because they're hard to do, just like closing schools. Uh, outsourcing the school to new management is an example of almost as 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 dire an intervention. Replacing the staff, replacing the principal, replacing the curriculum, rebooting the school, uh, not just doing what we did under the school improvement grants, which was to tell the school to come up with a plan to improve itself, a lot of paper chasing, uh, actually intervene to make fundamental changes in what the school does and how it does it and who does it. Uh, that's equivalent, in my opinion, to closing the school, maybe not quite as painful. David? Thoughts? Yeah, none of us are uh, none of us are going to get elected governor, but I, I broadly agree. L- let me just say, at at a high level, I think a couple points are on target. One is teachers are not the right target here, right? I think the days of evaluating teachers based on some technocratic average of test score growth over the last X number of years are mostly gone, um, and I think the right areas of focus are low performing schools and kids who aren't on grade level. One thing I like to see that we haven't talked about, right, is just broader adoption of grade retention in early grades. We haven't really talked about that, but um, it's something that a lot of states are doing, but a lot is not all, right? Many, many more states could be doing this. Um, It is not a silver bullet. I think it's a little utopian to suggest that everybody, you know, should be held back until they're on grade level, but it it it's important, right? And and there's a growing body of research that suggests um, that if you do this in early grades, that it works. As for schools, uh, I think I think what you guys are saying is about right. You know, I'll just note that a minority of the SIG schools that did implement the kind of interventions that Checker is talking about, um, that you know, it's something like twenty or twenty five percent actually did see some positive results, at least on my reading of the, re- the research. Um, so you know, I think. There is going to be a conversation about school closure, you know, and there is going to be a conversation about school performance. And I, I, you know, I think those are really the only options, right? If if you're serious about improving performance, I guess the last point I'll make is um, since, since I only get one comment, Mike, (laughs) uh, the last point I'll make is I, I, I don't, you know, I think it was sort of, there were some responses to Mike's column about bringing back no child left behind. I don't think that's really what you were calling for, at least as I understood it. And I, I don't think we should. I, I think ESSA gets the balance about right in terms of leaving accountability to the states and insisting on transparency for results. Accountability is complicated. It looks different in New York City than it does in Montana for obvious reasons. And I think that's right. I don't think we have any alternative um, but to sort of fight these battles at the state level. And I, I don't, I'm not optimistic that Congress can produce what we need in the present political moment. David's first point made clear that we have to deal with kids, not just schools. Uh, He was talking about individual kids who can't read in third grade. I would also talk about individual kids who can't pass a high school graduation test. I'm, I'm, I'm stunned by the fact that measures to repeal the Massachusetts MCAS test are going to be on the ballot in Massachusetts uh, for popular repeal of what's the country's longest lived high school graduation test, except for the New York regions. Uh, and um, this is a, a further example of moving away 
from student level accountability. Uh, we're also, I should just point out parenthetically, not making them come to school at all either. So if we don't make them come to school, we don't make them pass anything before they graduate. What is the meaning of graduating at that point? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And and we've talked about this a ton on this show, the grading issues as well, that you know, grade inflation is rampant. And so you put it all together and we're not asking kids to do much. And the problem with that, as we know, especially as kids get older, they need to put in a lot of effort in order to learn. And that, uh, as much as we might wish Alfie Cohen was right and that we could find this magical way for kids to have intrinsic motivation to learn, uh, I don't know. I'm enough of a realist to think that teenagers uh, sometimes just need to have incentives. And that means grades. And that means worrying about things like that. I have never once in my long life wished that Alfie Cohen was right. <laughs> well, what a wonderful world it would be if if he were right. Uh, yes. All right. So, yes. So we're, we're not talking about no child left behind necessarily, as David says, because of the federal role. But we are wanting to see states, and I guess that does mean probably governors, being willing to take a tougher line uh, on things like school closures and also on kid accountability. Unfortunately, as we as you hinted at, David, none of that is popular, right? It's kind of like it strikes me a little bit like the climate change analogy where, you know, for a long time, the thought was, oh, we need to make uh, energy really expensive, you know, gas really expensive, heating your home expensive, make people wear sweaters when they're at home again. That's what we got to do for climate change. None of that proved to be workable because it was unpopular. Instead, they're like, let's just have the government spend a bazillion dollars and drive down the price of solar. That maybe is going to work, right? I mean, we're asking politicians and the public to eat their spinach. And, and I'm not sure we can make that happen. It wasn't popular when Governor Bill Clinton and Governor Lamar Alexander and Governor George Bush and Governor Dick Riley uh, pushed for these things. It wasn't popular then. It w- won't be popular today, but sometimes they just have to do the right thing. Yeah, let me just say, I think the the student accountability piece is unusually important. It's always important, right? But it's un- unusually important right now, given how many kids have fallen behind right where they would be and i think i think there's more of a political opportunity there than there is when it comes to to closing schools Pe- people understand that the kids are behind uh and i think many people grasp that that it's in their long-term best interest to make sure that they can read right so to me that that is really uh, an area that we should just con- keep pushing on because um people get it even if it's it's sort of a hard message to hear All right. We will have to leave it there. Checker Finn, thank you for joining us as always. My pleasure. As always. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. Also joining us, uh, as always, my dog Thunder. He's been making an appearance the last couple of weeks. (laughs) Yes. I see he's just conked out behind you, taking a good snooze. You know what I think it is? It must be back to school. I think that, you know, he's out of better options. The boys are not here, so he's hanging out with me. He's hanging out with you. I get it. He's he's, he's really liking your pillows back there, too. Fascinating. Fascinating for our listeners. listeners. <laughs> oh, right. Our listeners. All right, David. So tough. Well, Amber, what you got for us on the research front? I have a new study from a trio of economists out of the University of Illinois. They are looking at teacher quality and how it's evolving over time by consecutive generations. 
They have this uh, intro that talks about, you know, a lot of the opportunities for women have changed over time. You know, race relations have obviously changed over time. So, you know, probably be good to study if teacher quality has changed over time. Uh, So they use North Carolina data for public schools between the years 1997 through 2016 to estimate birth cohort differences in overall value added and in race specific value added. Uh, They calculate the value added via these same methods that so many of these well-known economists have used already, like Kane and Chetty and Rockoff and Friedman. So um, that's pretty tight. Uh, Then they look at how these value added measures evolve across the 1946 to 1992 birth cohorts using the generational nicknames for baby boomers who are born between 1946 and 1964. Gen Xers born between 1965 to 1980, and Millennials born after 1980. Uh, it's a pretty straightforward descriptive exercise once they do the um, you know the value added calculations. But the big thing is they've got to solve this issue that teachers born at different times have different experience levels, uh, which are you know obviously uh, directly related. So they uh, it's a big big long discussion, but they end up opposing a cap to the returns to experiences at 15 years. Um, They go back and forth, you know, as to why they're doing that and what the studies show. Uh, But they assume that there are no further returns to experience after that based on their best understanding of the literature. Then they do a bunch of tests and actually show that that uh, cutoff at um, 15 years, uh, you know, no more returns after that actually works out pretty well. Uh, They they test out that, uh, that cutoff. Uh, they address sorting by birth cohort to different types of schools. So like, okay, maybe maybe there's some of that going on. So they estimate teacher by school fixed effects. And they also remove second career teachers from the data set, you know, because maybe they, you know, joined late and had a different career. So we don't want them in there. Uh, they focus on elementary teachers since middle school students are often tracked. And specifically, students in grades four and five, since they need sufficient lagged test scores. All right, results. The birth year means of teacher quality in math generally flat for the boomer cohorts. Then they rise among the Gen Gen X cohorts before leveling off at the high point for the millennials. Specifically, compared to being assigned to a baby boomer teacher, Assignment to a Gen X teacher raises students' math scores by 0.027 standard deviation. Assignment to a millennial raises math scores by 0.049 standard deviation. In contrast to math, the mean teacher quality estimates for reading, guess what? Show little evidence of variation across the birth cohort. So, so nothing for uh, reading, only, only uh, effects for math. Then they look at uh, teacher quality across both uh, birth cohorts for the teaching of black and white students. They saw gains for both uh, in terms of increasing effectiveness for, for both races, although it was significantly larger for uh, teachers uh, who were teaching black students. Uh, they perform up like a bunch of other race analyses. And the bottom line is they show that a black student assigned to a Gen X teacher has a math score 0.057 standard deviation higher than when assigned to a baby boomer teacher. And a black student assigned to a millennial teacher has a math score 0.09 
standard deviation higher than when assigned to a baby boomer teacher. Uh, and then they say, oh, this is kind of similar in impact. If you're familiar with the same race teacher effects, it's kind of on par with those. So they end up saying, you know, we're kind of optimistic about maybe we'll narrow the achievement gap some over time if we keep this up. And they've got this long section on, okay, what could be going on? Potential mechanisms, obviously, you know, who knows? But they do look at whether it's selective attrition of teachers, uh, but they find that high and low value added teachers tend to have similar rates of attrition. Then they say, well, maybe they're selectively, um, selective attrition across cohorts, and they find that that's not a big driver either. Whew. And then they say, well, baby boomers are by definition persisting longer, and they, they say, hey, we can't rule out that selective attrition is more of a factor there, but it would presumably be concentrated in the later career period. And then they look at observed teacher characteristics. They say, nope, that's not explaining too much of the variation in teacher quality either. And the third thing they, they mess around with and try to, you know, dig into is, um, you know, bias, racial bias. North Carolina has teacher evaluations of how teachers will predict. We've seen these before, like, you know, how far do you think your kid will go? Or how do you think they're going to do on their test? And, and they also had some blindly scored performance tests to measure racial bias. And the end of all that is they found that baby boomer teachers have higher measurable bias relative to both Gen X and millennial teachers, but those differences were really small and they don't think that they can explain those gener generational differences in teacher quality on their own. Whew, that's what I've got. <laughs> Wait, so I, I, I was expecting one more sentence. And so therefore they have figured out that the answer no, is... No, no figuring out, Mike, no figuring out. All right. Well, hey, first of all, good news. I mean, this is good news, and and especially since we would worry that it would maybe go the other direction because, as as you said, you know, the gender issue here that uh, you know women have so many more options today than they did back then, and so you know we've all worried that uh, does that mean that the, the gender teacher quality has gotten worse over time? And and the answer here may be no. We're actually getting better at teaching kids. Well, Mike, I mean, if if you just look at IQ scores, right over time, I mean, it's there is a long, long, long term trend right, towards higher IQ, right? And what presumably reflects a, a, a long, you know, a, a range of factors from health and education, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth, right? So I, yeah, I hear the point about, you know, about, about female teachers, but at the same time, it doesn't shock me that we're sort of, as a society, gradually accumulating more human capital, right? Like I would, I, it would, it would be disturbing, right? If like a teacher in 2023 wasn't a little better than a teacher in, 1903, right? You would hope. You would hope, right. And I guess this is a question methodologically is whether they really can say that this is about teacher effectiveness and not just, you know, just student achievement has gone up over time. And so this is what we're seeing. Student receptivity, right? And and do you feel like, Amber, that this is really about teacher effectiveness? I mean, I don't know, Mike. <laughs> Like at the end of the day, it's it is descriptive. Uh, aside from you know the, uh, the the value added calculations, and so I don't know. I, I honestly, it wasn't like I was terribly um, convinced. You know, in terms of I think they did the best they could with the data they had. But yeah, there were obviously a lot of things that you can't measure here in terms of what could be going on. So. But it does. But, but because it's value added, at least we know it's not simply that, for example, kids are coming into elementary school better prepared, you know, maybe because of 
you know, better nutrition and the kinds of things that people use to explain the higher IQ scores, right? This actually means the kids are learning more from year to year now than in the past. That's why we're seeing achievement go up. Uh, and so, right, maybe teachers deserve at least some of the credit for that. Seems like they probably do, but it could be other stuff else. Yeah, and I, I do think that, I mean, just saying it's value-added, it doesn't mean you can just rule, completely rule out the student side of the equation, Mike, to Amber's point. Right? There's a lot happening here, right, in terms of changes in students and something about the combination of, of kids and um, teachers is leading to slightly more progress over time until very recently, unfortunately. Yeah, it is slight, you know, point point oh two. You know, so these are, they're not huge, but, but yeah, there are slight improvements. Okay. We'll take it. Slight improvements. <laughs> Sometimes we got to take what we can get. <laughs> we did. We did. All right. Thanks, Amber. Very interesting. Good yes. stuff. All right. Well, that is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.